Hello, I'm Regina Botras and this is Backstage, where we talk with the who's who on stage, in dance, comedy and performing arts, speaking with the leading theatre makers of our times and how they came to the stage and what drives them and inspires them. And my guest in this podcast is Ian Sinclair. He has a rich and long and successful career alternating between bold new plays and the classics. He's directed celebrated major productions for state companies at Sydney Theatre Company, Belvoir, Melbourne Theatre Company and Queensland Theatre Company. And his direction and dramaturgy on Beyond the Neck by Tom Holloway and The Seed by Kate Mulvaney were both nominated for Augies. He's also directed Our Town for Sydney Theatre Company and Blood Wedding, A View from the Bridge and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Look, I've seen so many of his plays. It's fantastic to kind of return. Um, He's also worked internationally with Traverse Theatre in Scotland, New Dramatists in New York and the Royal Shakespeare Company, Royal Court and National Theatre in England, amongst others. He's back with The Caretaker at The Ensemble, which is on until the 19th of November with Darren Gilshan and starring with others, a relationship that was previously seen on that stage with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Welcome. Ian Sinclair. Hello, hello. Hi, it's so lovely to be back. Thanks very much for that introduction. <laughs> it's so lovely to see you and to, to be reminded of those plays and your work that you've done and, and so such great plays and direction. But before we get into The Caretaker, uh, I want to find out from you how you came to theatre in the first place. Do you remember the moment that you knew you wanted to work in the theatre or direct or be a dramaturg or were you an actor first, like a lot of directors? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I did go to NIDA as an actor for a little bit, um, but I didn't finish. Um, but um, that wasn't the thing that got me into it in the first place. I am um, sort of an immigrant boy, you know, uh, my, my parents are English. When I first came over here, I was dropped off in a school in Armadale in northern New South Wales and um, Hunter Valley Theatre Company came along and I went and did a, a meet and greet with them. And it was the first time in my life that I felt like I met my people, you know, like I I talked funny and, you know, and and was sort of mercilessly mocked at school for the way I sounded and all of that sort of stuff, you know. And um, I walked into a room and there was such a diverse bunch of people there who couldn't care less where I was from or what I sounded like. They just wanted to know me. And I thought, oh, I want more of this, please. And it took a couple of years for me to get out of that school and all that sort of thing. And then um, sort of found ways to be in the company of uh, theatre people people and I've right. you know managed to stay that way up until now <laughs> which is great <laughs> but first of all you were acting is that what you're saying with yeah the you know NIDA? I guess that's the first way people try to get in isn't it um and then but I discovered uh, fairly quickly on that um like um, um, the acting was enjoyable but um I found that I was much more used to everybody else in the group uh, once I started making observations about story. And, um, right. and I've, that, that was really where things started kicking off. And so that's, uh, there's nothing I love more you know, than, than helping actors tell story. Uh, and that's, that's mm. what I've sort of dedicated myself to, I guess. You know. mm. So what was the 
you know, when was that moment where you moved from acting into the more helping yeah, other actors? Yeah, um, oh, well, uh, <clears throat> so, I, so it was at NIDA in 1992. So that was the same year as Tom Long and Rachel Brain and um, oh, so many wonderful actors, Glenn Hazeldean, you know, um, yeah, so, yeah uh, uh, Anita Haig, just wonderful group yeah. of people. Um, and... Uh, and uh, it was it was great to be with them and all of that sort of thing, but um, I, I don't know. I I um, I, I didn't find the great love doing it. I've, uh, and then um, I, I took a couple of years off. My dad lives in Chile, so I went to visit him and stayed with him down in the south there and wandered around in the south of Chile, trying to, in an existential funk, you know, uh, like you do. Uh, it's a good place for it. It's really beautiful. They got fields. Um, and, I was going to uh, say, did you find yourself down there? Yeah, in Patagonia. Well, I wish I did, but at least I calmed down a bit, you know. <laughs> and uh, and and uh, and. When I came back, I um, I sort of went and did an English degree and all sorts, you know, just thinking, well, God, what am I supposed to be doing? And then um, yeah. applied for the RADA course um, and got in. And that changed everything after that, really. So I went mm. back to UK and, and started, um, you know, started that process over there. Yeah. So how, like, how different is it over there? And what did you learn over there that you, like, maybe you bought back or what is different? There's a couple of really key differences, I think, um, uh, just from my experience between those two national organisations. And, you know, it's worth saying that this was in, a, in the 90s now, so things have moved along. But yeah. back then, um, the, my biggest observation, I think, was um, was that the, the level of uh, pastoral care, the level of deep investment in the artists were, at the time was, was so different. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was used to sort of that feeling of, oh, you think you're so great, you better prove yourself you know which is proliferate yeah. still alas you know a lot and it's it's such a shame you know that that our industry um, it can be so mean uh, and so and so sort of cutthroat to arguably the most emotionally um, sensitive and volatile people there are you know it's it's, it's, know. A, it's such a cruel paradox um, yeah. and, and I felt that that um, at, at rather they really understood that they 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 choose to invest in artists and um, and then they give you everything you know why while you're there and so you don't get that awful feeling of your knees knocking or, or you know having a target on your back that sometimes people you know um, used to describe as what that as the experience of being at drama school and um, yeah. and uh, and that made a really big difference I think also I got a bit of a rude shock because um, it was a combined degree at King's College London and um, yeah. and I got a bit of a rude shock there because they used the Socratic method you know and so like um, you'd have seminars and you couldn't just act nervous and, and get out of answering questions questions like I, like, like I used to <laughs> like you know they'd, they'd you know they'd occasionally turn and say and now Mr Sinclair will explain the use of the echiclaver and if you hadn't done your wow. reading you um you were in deep um you know hot water fast and so I kind of I guess I learned two things which was um the importance of being um generous and and careful with artists and then also um the importance of 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 intellectual rigor and research and really deep diving into work and that if you do those two things um unusual flowers uh, start to blossom ones that you'd never even imagined you you you'd planted so mr sinclair what is the echinoclaimer <laughs> 
What is it? I don't even get the word. Claver. Uh, you know, I, I hope I hope my professor isn't listening because he'll probably uh, bring me up and give me a correction. But it was a it was a it was a little um, it was a little platform, a plinth that the that the ancient Greek actors would stand on um, to deliver their orations. Yeah, um, that I wish I had. I wish I was so quick with the answer. Um, you know, when I was doing the course, because I think I actually said sorry. I haven't done the reading. <laughs> Well, you've done it now and it's stuck, the intellectual rigour. Um, it's funny that, that you say uh, the paradox of the the kind of mean sort of side of it because the thing that drew you in the first place is that feeling. That, that feeling of welcome. Lovely. Yeah. And family. And there is that sense of real kind of because you do spend such – intimate long hours on a play for a period of time you do have that kind of familial part of the mm. theater right yeah. so um and i know when you worked with darren gilshin and before but can you talk about that sort of relationship building that is I, yeah. I don't know, part of that work. It's interesting. I heard, um, you know, the great Eddie Izzard talking about um, pe mm. people in showbiz, you know, and Eddie Izzard's incidentally had a sort of similar kind of background to me. He had family that moved all over the world all the time and followed them around, kind of these weird international kids, you know. And, yeah. um, and he made the observation that the vast majority of people who are in the biz um, either had parents in the biz, you know, in some way, mm. or came from... Um, came from unstable environments you know um mm. either it was uh, that they they had parents that moved around a lot um you know um say so quite often army kids and diplomats kids and all that sort of thing um or of course other other unstable environments like uh, family familial breakdowns and split ups mm. and all that sort of thing and um and I, th I think he's when he's mainly when he I, he mentioned that in a comedy routine that I sort of went and saw him do in, in London years and years ago, and it just occurred to me I thought, oh yeah, all right, okay, I'm one of them, you know. Um, I love forming um, intense family environments, deeply emotionally fluent environments, but also there's something about I'm used to the idea of them um, disappearing and reforming again and then disappearing mm. and reforming again, you know, and um, and that's kind of exactly the emotional rhythm of putting on a play. You you get so intimate, you know, with the, with the people yeah. that you're working with and then, um, you know, a month and a half goes and you pat each other on the back and you might not see each other for a year or two years <laughs> and, um, and you go off and, you know, uh, moonlight with a whole bunch of other people. You know? <laughs> Your new family. <laughs> That's right. Who will then also break up and disappear, and you'll go and form a new one. And so, so it's a little bit like the rhythm that that I that I've had my whole life as a child, really. You know, because yeah. my my dad moved every three years. He's a geologist, and so every three, like I'd I'd you know I'd get on the plane and go to some new country and have to fit into some completely new wow. new world um, every single time and make new friends. And so that feels quite <laughs> a lot like putting on a show. So. There's this, there's something about this kind of, I don't know, pendulum of um, vulnerability and mm. resilience or something. Yeah, I think that's it. What a, what a beautiful description of an actor, you know, a pendulum mm. of vulnerability and resilience. That's exactly it. You know, I was at Arto described actors as athletes of the heart. You know, which yeah. I just love so much. Um, yeah. But but it's exactly that. You have to be really, really tough and flinty. You know, if you look, if you meet the older actors, you know, the actors in their seventies and eighties, yeah. you know, they're, they're missing their back teeth because they couldn't get the dental done.
and all that sort of thing, you know. And they're, but they're 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 as tough as nails as well, yeah. and just so beautiful. And you know, I think maybe another thing to worth mentioning about actors and what makes them such heaven as well is, um, you know, you go if you go to a to a to an actors party, um, mm. there isn't uh, the ageism that exists everywhere else. You know, you go to an actors yeah. party and you can you can sit down and talk to an eighty year old actor and then turn your head and talk to a seventeen year old one without there being any sense of um, of hierarchy in the in the traditional sense you know mm. and that's such a wonderful thing you know um, yeah. that 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 uh, that especially I think the the theater community provides for people it will take mm. anyone we'll, we'll take anyone <laughs> you don't need to go and get yourself a degree to join us you know we'll welcome <laughs> you because it's, it's supposed to take everyone because we're supposed to represent um, the world that we live in everyone right? yeah yeah Indeed. So let's talk about the caretaker. Oh, what yes, has please. drawn you to to do this play? Was there something in particular? Like, what was the most interesting thing that you wanted to show, or what drew you, or where? I mean, is it a long time coming? Well, I I was introduced to Harold Pinter when I was studying directing, you know, because uh, mm. and also when I was studying dramaturgy, because it's such mm. an enigma, you know, the, his writing. It's 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 so. P- profoundly freeing but once again it's paradoxical and it's something I mentioned in mentioned in my director's notes I think um that um it's it's super complicated and sophisticated at the same time as as being um completely simple you know um it's 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 terrifying and hilarious at the same time you know and so all of these paradoxes coexist inside all of it and um and I've been terrified of it for years, you know, in, in a good way, um, sort of respectfully terrified of, of working on, on Harold Pinter's work and always feeling like I wasn't quite um, equipped or sort of uh, ready to ready to, to take it on. Mm. Um, but then I kept meeting p- people who I really valued who said, hey, you've got to you've got to get yourself into this, you know. Um, and mm. and the more the more that happened, the more I thought, OK, right, well, perhaps the, the time has come. Um, then it, that happens. And then you try to. Um, um, you try to uh, pitch it to direct to to the, all the theatre companies, mm. and they go, "Oh, Pinter, I don't know. Mm. You know, that sounds like it's going to be a long night in the theatre with um, <laughs> ponderous pauses and you know self-involvement <laughs> yes. and and you know unspeakable par- darkness and unfathomable poetry and all that sort of thing. You know, and so it's it's a hard sell. Luckily, mm. um, uh, because I've got a history with uh, Mark Kilmurray, the wonderful Mark Kilmurray at, um, of the ensemble. You know, after I did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf which is yeah. also not a walk in the park <laughs> you know very sophisticated oh, and complicated um, oh. ga- um, series of games in that one um, I absolutely and then also- love it and I loved your production too oh absolutely. thank you yeah, yeah it was terrific go, with go. Darren in it yeah. and, and Jen yeah, Lennon yeah yeah. Um, Lennon, yeah yeah and then and then of course doing View from a Bridge I think um, uh, Mark mm. who had played Mick before in, in the previous production oh. in UK um, wow. dropped me a line and said uh, hey what do you think about The Caretaker and I, and I, I jumped to the chance and I, I immediately said can I have Darren please you know yeah. um, and that was 2019 and then all of the craziness <laughs> hit and so we've, we've been sitting on this for three years and right. it's it's a long time to sit on an intense play <laughs> <laughs> So did you learn something in those three years or whatever it's been that you didn't know when way you first started? Way too much, way too much. I'd read it one time and I'd think, oh, okay, all of the all of the characters are components of, of Pinter's psyche, you know. And oh. then I'd read it the next day and go, oh, no, they're not. No, no, that's not it at all. One's the ego, Ooh. one's the id, one's the animus, you know. And, and it just... 
eventually I just had to like I actually took it out of the apartment and put it in my car to so I wouldn't wouldn't read it because oh, <laughs> wow. it's like okay wow. all, what I actually need to do is get in the room with those three actors and explore it with beginner's mind mm. and that was the that was the mm. philosophy we all took we stopped gooning over it um, during lockdown and in fact we left it alone and just treated it as a as a wonderful light at the end of a long dark tunnel yeah and indeed. that's exactly how it went. Yeah. And how do you think he does that kind of paradox between the humor or the complex and the simple? Well, um, he's a genius, you know, and uh, I wish I could give an answer. I have absolutely no idea how they do it, you know. Like, I, I have it every, every you know, I, I teach here at 16th Street in Melbourne. I work on Shakespeare yeah. all the time as well here. Mm. And um, I, I get a similar question from the actors. It's like, how did Shakespeare do it? I've got absolutely no idea. I can see how wonderful it is and I can shine a light here and there to you and, and help you, you know, um, go on a merry dance and see through his eyes for a brief moment. What a joy that is, you know. To speak, to speak the words of a of a of an artist of that level of eloquence and alacrity and and joy and humanism, yeah. you know, and um yeah. and it's it sort of it's it, working on Pinter feels similar to working on Shakespeare. Just this endless fertility, you know, mm-hmm. um, you, mm-hmm. you never get tired doing it. And so I've, now that I'm away from the show after we've opened, you know, the the actors are sending me text messages at four a.m. with revelations, going, "Mate, mate, I've just realised something else," you know. <laughs> endless joy um do you, what you the other thing you said in your notes were was it altered the course of dramatic writing yeah yeah what how like well in a i guess the arrival of modernism uh it really sort of brought that through and um i know sort of people like to think that modernism is over and postmodernism and post dramatic and blah 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 is all sort of the thing now um i'm not necessarily convinced by that i think i think i think um modernist principles are alive and well in our culture um and uh and i think i guess the big one for pinter and what made it such a a challenge for the um, four of us in rehearsal was that um he breaks away knowingly and consciously breaks away not only from aristotle Aristotelian convention, you know that that a play needs to have three acts and rising action. It needs to have a character with a with a fatal flaw. It needs to have a denouement, etc. You know all of that stuff. It needs to be about an important person with good values who gets put under the ringer. Um, that's that plus he's actually breaking not just not just theatrical conventions but moral conventions as well you know and then on top of that this is a play that came out you know he writ- he wrote it um, in the 50s uh, and so uh, you know and also he grew up Jewish in Hackney uh, you know and, and playing on the bomb sites you know after the Luftwaffe did all of their redevelopment yeah. in, in sort of East End London and um, and so uh, and you know he, he he talks about in 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 his uh, biography he talks about being you know being chased by Mosley's boys by the by the National Front mm-hmm. you know and, and seeing and seeing Jewish elders uh, fr- you know members of his own community getting beaten up in the streets and all that sort of stuff you know at the end of the war the Holocaust you know all of the unspeakable things and so it. it you can feel um, that that sort of that British um, re- reaction to the loss of meaning um, mm. coming through, and it, the, mm. of course it manifests in so many different ways. You know, the one that I'm most familiar with through my dad, because um, when we lived overseas, we just um, uh, we'd listen to to the BBC World Service. That's all we yeah, had. Yeah. We didn't have telly or anything, yeah. and so we'd listen to the goons, you know, and we'd listen to 
to Spike Milligan a lot, you know, and all, and, and then Monty Python. My dad had bring, got, all, got all the Monty Python records in. And all of those, you know, are kind of modernist responses to the loss of meaning at the end of the Great Wars. And, um, and that... But Pinter, of course, has got another dimension inside all of that, which is the Jewish experience. Um, you know, uh, Harold is not necessarily his name. Is his na- name necessarily uh, in the same way that Arthur Miller was name was? You know, Harold and Arthur are not terrifically Jewish names, are they? Um, you know, and so there's a real survival imperative going on there. And so <clears throat> Pinter's got that got that sort of goon-like quality, but there's there are there are layers upon layers of other dimensions there. And um, if I could quote uh, Darren Gilshanen with it, you know, he said, "I think I've he said I think I've worked out what it is. It's life or death." That's what makes it different. It's not just, you know, the, you know, I don't know, the flying batter pudding from Battersea, you know, power center, mm. like the, the goons might do, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's got another thing inside it again, which mm. is, which is the very real threat, the very real um, consciousness that there are people out there who wanted to kill him and his kind, mm. you know, and you could feel that radiating through his work. So we've jumped in with this sort of assumed knowledge that anyone listening knows um, what the play is about. <laughs> so, so just just set the scene for us and and maybe how you have taken. Well, I that. wouldn't dare speak to what the play is about. I mean, it's such a it's an astonishingly complex and and beautiful and strange piece. I yeah. can tell you the premise, um, and that and the premise is what Harold Pinter was ha- very happy to talk about as well. He he himself um, is famously gnomic about it as well. Um, Alan Akebourne once wrote to him um, because he was performing in it, uh, and he he said to Alan Akebourne, um, uh, Alan Akebourne said, "So, so what's what's it all about? How do I do this?" And and Pinter's response was, "He was he was a a, a massive cricket Mm -hmm. fan and and also played cricket um, regularly, Um, and his response was, "Play it with a straight bat or play it straight down the field." Sorry, that's what he said. Alan, just play it straight Mm -hmm. down the field. This is such a cricketing metaphor, but um, uh, um, and that's that's kind of what we've done with it. So it's playing it straight down the field, it's a story of 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 a man um, in his thirties who witnesses an elderly tramp being beaten up in a cafe, and intervenes and. Um, uh, stops the guy from you can you can pos- probably stops the guy from being beaten to death by a very angry man um and takes him home uh to his house which is sort of a, a beaten up old sort of uh two up two down um somewhere probably chiswick somewhere i don't know northwest london and um <coughs> fulham maybe um and and invites him into his room and gives him uh shelter uh and protection um but of course, the trouble is, and this is, you know, one of the sort of really sobering things about the play that it really awakens us to, you know, all of us have done this. All of us have walked past the, the homeless people in co- outside coals, you know, and sometimes we'll give them a dollar. Sometimes we'll have a chat. Um, but almost none of us would invite one of them home. Um, and part of that is is for very good reasons, you know, which is that... Um, there are many reasons to end up homeless on the street, but one of the dominant reasons for that is is profound mental illness, and that you um, you don't socialize very well with other people. And that's the premise, really, is that this this young man who himself has got not not necessarily you know the most mentally well person himself takes uh, takes a tramp home and brings all of the complication that he's living on the street in his own room. That's why he's at risk. Really, on top of that, this, this panel has a younger brother 
um, who is uh, not exactly the the most well person either. And, and you start to get a picture from Pinter of uh, something which is really specific to, to places like London and Paris, I think, and, you know, old Europe, the existence of an entrenched underclass and um, that we have a little bit of in Australia, you know, but of course we, we actually were founded by <laughs> by the Brits, us lot, trying to get, trying to, you know, em, tr using using Australia as the trash yeah. can of Europe. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, but that underclass, of course, uh, still exists mm. to this day. And that's something that, that was in, that's been around in like continuously um, pretty much since the Romans. And, you know, and you can, f there, there's all those extraordinary pieces of work. Say, say John Gay's Beggar's Opera, which became the, which of course um, Breck turned into the Thripany Opera, which was all about um, the un underclass life in, in, in London at the time. Uh, you know, Jack Shepard and all of those stories. And so Mac the Knife, who was, you know, based on, based on Jack Shepard um, and all that, those extraordinary stories. And so this play taps into a, a very old tradition um, something that t Dickens had tapped into as well, as you know, which which is London underclass people who uh, a, a whole society of people who will, will have never been able to climb above, you know, and you feel that all the time in Pinter's work, especially his early ones. Things like The Dumb Waiter, a play about two underlings getting mysterious messages, you know, from who knows who while they're waiting to, you know, while they're waiting to cap somebody. And you know, it's one of the most extraordinary moments in theatre, you know, these two thugs waiting and then the dumb waiter pings and he opens it up and it says, liver and onions. <laughs> <laughs> and a packet of crisps it's like what's he telling us what's he trying to say and and you never you never told because the there's a, there's such a, a distinct disconnect between the underclass and the, all the other classes in england and that's what this play taps into so uh, terrifically well yeah i can't help but think of down and out in paris and london you mentioned paris and london yeah yeah exactly yeah um, well yeah and it sounds like also this you know just the title the caretaker goes from this man taking a homeless person in as the caretaker to him, but then the caretaker shifts. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely, it does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and um, and of course the whole question is, um, you know, um, have you ever been a caretaker before? And mm. it, that was a, this is another one of those four a.m. text messages from one of the actors. Uh, you know, yes. I think it was Henry Nixon who sent me a message to saying, "Oh my God, none of them have been taken care of." You know, mm. uh, none of them. And so none of them even know what a caretaker is. Sure, there's the job of looking after a house, but um, but you can see the bewilderment mm. in their eyes when they're asked these questions. You know, have you ever? And and, and that's exactly what Davy says. That he says, "Oh, I've never been a caretaker before. What would that entail?" And then there's this hilarious sequence where um, the two of them, ni neither of them, can come up with a definition <laughs> of what a caretaker actually is. You know, and wow. um, and so yeah. and it, I, look, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. You know, Pinter was a poet. Uh, predominantly mm -hmm. and um and for him to, to him to play on that idea and the whole word of it you know of, of taking care um and what happens when people aren't taken care of i mean it's one of the things that you really feel in this play is the is the pronounced absence of of women it's it's mm -hmm. you know th there's one mention of, of them you know when when poor old um Aston says, you know, I, I sat down in a cafe and a woman had a chat to me and then she said, how would you like to have a look at my body? Uh, you know, and Davey says, oh, well, that's happened to me all the time, you know. Uh, uh, and then there's, a, then there's a pause that Pinter's written in there and you just feel the, the 
chasm of 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 loneliness and disaffection and and just two men who who just probably haven't even been touched you know by anyone mm. Mm. and um and those are the moments you know where there's all sorts of craziness and hilarity and, and lunacy that happens in the play of course and you know it really mm. takes you on a wild roller coaster ride but it's those moments i think which which dignify it beyond most other plays i've ever experienced working on there are pockets where it just mm. drops deep you know and um that that sort of thing happens in shakespeare you know that astonishing moment when king lear sits with with the fool and says and turns to him in a moment of clarity and says am i mad you know mm. and it, th those kind of pockets of of just deep truth um uh, abound mm. in pinter's work and i can only hope mm. that i've that i've isolated and identified enough to do it to do it yeah. in some sort of justice you know <laughs> yeah but it's, it's it's definitely a humbling experience working on a script with this level of um dexterity and that like you say, the pinter pause. Um, how many beats are they, and how did you? Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, Harold later on in his life sort of hated being regarded as the as the the pause guy, right? You know, <laughs> oh, really? and of course it it spawned so many prosaic sort of responses to it, and that's right. Everybody going, oh, is it three seconds? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and then of course when when we did all the research, there were all these different versions. You know, Sir Peter Hall said that um, said that I think what it was was what uh, the pause was a crisis, um, and and that that the silence was was the end of one thing the gap between the end of one thing and the beginning of another all of these wonderful ideas um but i think to answer your question from later earlier on which was what sort of influences he had one of those ones i think is that that he, he allowed the possibility for non-spoken moments to exist in on the stage um and of course that's now such a standard thing so you don't have to write in a moment or there's a shared exchange here or, or they feel it you know um that's that's uh, that's so normalized because of harold pinter and so when he was writing pause slight pause silence my gut feeling is that what he was actually doing was inviting the actors to feel the moment between the two of them the interpersonal chasm between them you know and and to register it in whatever way they saw fit and so mm -hmm. we we did observe every single pause and every single slight pause and every single silence exactly as he asked for it um right from the get-go in fact uh danielle maas um, my assistant director terrific assistant director great intellect in her own in her own sense um what poor things she had a bell you know which she'd ring every single like so the actors were like pavlov's dogs every time there was a pause ding 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 and they'd observe it but um we discovered that None of the pauses were um, gratuitous. None of them really uh, uh, pushed a point too far, and which was a really wonderful discovery. The length of them, um, look, I think pauses are relative in a play. You know, if in a play that moves fast, just breathing in feels like a pause. And I was certainly desperate not to do a production of a pinter that reaffirmed people's prejudices about it being ponderous and conceited and pretentious okay. and weighty. Um, look, sure, there are elements of, of, of the caretaker that are ponderous. There are elements that are weighty, you know, and there's certainly elements of it that are terrifically smart. Um, but, um, you know, uh, one thing I was taught very early on as a director is that the audience's time is very precious and they resent you if you squander 
squander it. Um, and so we're very careful with that, you know. Um, and so, yes, you know, there is a, there, we follow the full 30 seconds at the beginning as he asked for. But if, if we, you'll, um, those of you who will come and see this play, you'll notice there's a 30-second pause as Mick sits in the, in the, alone in the room waiting to see what happens. But then there's an explosion of life and being. And so there's a reason for these, you know, for the, for, for the rhythm shifts and, and, and for these things and for moments of nothing to happen and then suddenly moments of everything happening. And that's because Pinter knows how to write rhythmically. He knows how to write symphonically. And, um, you know, so, Joanna Murray Smith knows how to do that and Kate Mulvaney knows how to do that and Declan Green knows how to do that, you know. And I'd say all of those wonderful uh, playwrights that I just lifted off the top of my head all somehow, either subconsciously or consciously, have absorbed the le the wonderful lesson or at least been given the permission that Howard mm. Pinter gave all writers mm. in English. Well, Ian Sinclair, I feel like I could talk with you for another half an hour. I'd or love more. to talk about Harold forever. <laughs> uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm newly in love. You know, um, I, I, I want to do all of them now. <laughs> yes, right. Okay, look out. Ian's taking on the cannon. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. We have to go to talking about keeping our audiences. Yes, indeed, alas, uh, yes. Tell me one last thing about your car. Oh yes, yes. So, so Darren Gilshanan, who is just an heaven. Um, the, the thing I love so much about Darren is that uh, he's. He's bloody funny, um, but at the same time, he's super smart. He's wise, you know. Uh, and and I, I I I I worked with Darren first on Our Town, uh, the Thornton Wilder play, um, and that's such a beguiling piece, you know. It's it, it's it's Thornton Wilder's gentle way of reminding sort of rich middle class audiences that they're all going to die. But he does it so beautifully. He just leads you down the primrose path with the jokes and with stories about family. And next thing you know. Um, you're up in a graveyard. And Darren Gilsman did that with such class and aplomb, you know. Um, and then um, then working with uh, working with Genevieve, uh, um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, yes. which can be another, that can be a ponderous night in the theatre, three long acts, mm. um, very dark, strange m material, a lot of sort of weird, mm. you know, transactional behaviour between a husband and a wife, etc. And once again, Jen and yeah. Daz are comedians um, first, mm. but they're also artists as well and so they managed to walk mm. that very fine line you know between horror yeah. and joy and um and that's what will get you through a, um the really really difficult work um so so mm. daz uh, hosts the night um as davies and and he pulls 200 people um right down to the bottom of hell and back and all over the place in between you know um and he's ably assisted by anthony gawley um who i've done well, so many shows with now you know what, a, what the, yeah. a, a man with the heart of a lion you know um mm -hmm. who who i've who i've got on the tightest leash possible uh you know he's <laughs> he, he's hardly allowed to move or breathe and i kept saying don't worry trust me your heart will resonate out of this it really will we, we'll feel it we'll feel it mm -hmm. and also because he's such a wonderful foil and a contrast to henry nixon who is um mm -hmm. I can't even describe what that is that he's doing, but it's an explosion of the most extraordinary <laughs> force, you know. Um, and so all three of them are so beautifully written in terms of their character rhythms, um, and they, they they fit these characters like a glove. And so it, on some level, it feels as though you know um, the assembly, at least on one level, was 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 
really fluid and easy, which was just putting those three mm. very eccentric, beautiful men in a room and letting them go loose. You know? oh. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Ian. It's been just terrific. An absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for chatting with me. <laughs> Well, the absolutely captivating Ian Sinclair there talking with me about his life in the theatre and, in particular, The Caretaker, which is on at the Ensemble Theatre at the moment until the 19th of November. 